welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Steve Choi, and we are going to talk all about how to fundraise for 501c4s as opposed to 501c3s. So let me introduce my friend Steve, who is a very impressive person. He is currently the senior advisor at the New York Immigration Coalition, but prior to that was the executive director. And while he was there from June 2013 to September 2020, he quintupled the size of the organization and budget. And it became the nation's largest state immigrant rights coalition and served as a New York chief advocate on immigrant rights, education, civic participation, and healthcare access on the federal, state, and local levels. Prior to that, Steve was the executive director of the McQuan Center for Community Action. And prior to that, was the founding director of the Korean Workers Project at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. He has received a JD from Harvard Law School, an MA from the University of Hawaii, and BA from Stanford University. Welcome, Steve. Very impressive bio. Yeah, thank you. And always people are like, University of Hawaii, that doesn't fit there. <laughs> I'm always like, that, that actually is a very fundamental part and formative part of my experiences. But yeah, I'm really happy to be on. I'm excited for the conversation. Okay, well, since we're on the topic, tell me a little bit about your journey from your early days at Stanford to who you are today. And I'd like a little detour at the University of Hawaii because I'd like to <laughs> imagine myself in Hawaii right now. Sure. So I've always been intrigued by politics and the political field. And I actually got my start organizing in the late 1990s when I was interning at a small, tiny organization that had no funding and no staff, and it was called Waikasek. And it was a small Korean community-based organization in Flushing. And I got my start there organizing against with the Fix 96 campaign. And essentially, this is the last time we saw a big rise in anti-immigrant hate in the mid-1990s. And Congress passed a ton of anti-immigrant laws. And so I did a lot of work in Flushing, Queens, with the Korean American community, fighting back against these 1996 laws. I never imagined that 25 years later, we'd still be doing stuff around the Fix 96 campaign, which is just mind-boggling. But as an intern, I helped organize a candidate forum in Flushing, Queens. And it's kind of hard to imagine, but Flushing then had seen this huge influx of Asian community members going into Flushing. And the sitting council member there, Julie Harrison, she flat out called Asians invaders and criminals and smugglers, right? It's kind of rhetoric sound familiar. And so there were a ton of Asian American candidates vying for that seat, including John Liu. And so we had the candidate forum with all of them. And John Liu actually won and became the very first council member for Flushing, but also the very first Asian American elected official in New York. So it was really part of that experience that led me to go to law school. And when I graduated law school, I got a fellowship to represent low-wage Korean immigrant workers. It was the underbelly of the model minority myth where you have these immigrant workers, many of them undocumented, who are working overnight shifts in delis or inhaling crazy crazy fumes as nail salon workers or construction workers who are getting their wages stolen. So after being a civil rights lawyer at the Asian American Legal Defense Fund, I learned two things. One, as a social justice lawyer, you come out of law school and you're like, I'm going to change the world with the law. And you realize pretty quickly, you can't. And two, in a very related note, you learn that law is actually a very dull and limited tool in your toolbox. 
and that advocacy, organizing, electoral pressure, these are often much, much sharper tools. So then I pivoted away from being a practicing lawyer and kind of became a, a recovering lawyer, so to speak. And I started running organizations that did advocacy and organizing. So I went back to that small grassroots Korean organization that I got to start at in my summers when I was a University of Hawaii student. And I, I started working there full time and I became the acting director there in 2009. And I became the executive director and we changed our name. So then we became the Min Kwan Center for Community Action. And we created some Asian American advocacy and civic engagement coalitions. I really liked that work. And I thought I actually was better at doing that than I was as being a lawyer. And so then in 2013, I moved to the NYC. And similarly, we've created similar coalitions across the state now, working across many different immigrant communities to win things like driver's licenses for all New Yorkers. And so I did that. And after being an ED for 10 years, I needed a break. I'm sure as you can, you can that, uh, sympathize Steve. with, <laughs> I'm sure as you can sympathize. So now I'm a senior advisor to the NYC. I'm also doing some work for NYC Action, which is the NYC's affiliated political arm. It's their 501c4. And I'm also doing some coaching of nonprofit EDs as well. And honestly, most of my advice nowadays revolves around don't make the same mistakes that I made as an ED. And that's basically what I'm up to nowadays. Yeah, I heard that. I mean, I built a whole career on don't do all the things I did. Let me teach you all the things I screwed up so you don't have to. Exactly. I want to talk about Asian American activism and advocacy a little bit later, but before we get there, can you talk to us, for the audience who may not be familiar, what is the difference between a 501c3 and a 501c4? Sure. So there are a couple key differences, and I'm just going to describe them in shorthand. There are election lawyers who will get into the nitty-gritty. I don't think you're here to hear that. So I think there are three key differences. One, the most important one, a 501c3 cannot get too directly involved in elections. They cannot endorse a candidate. 501c4s can endorse a candidate and then can go out and tell everybody to vote for that candidate. Big, big, big difference, right? And thing that I think a lot of people focus on. Two, 501c3s can do advocacy, all these advocacy organizations, but it's more general. They can say, we're gonna tell every state senator to vote yes on immigration legal services but they can't get too specific around districts and elected officials. In other words, they can't say, we're gonna focus on voters in District 12 in the state Senate, and we're gonna tell them to tell Mike Janaris, the state senator there, and tell him to vote yes on immigration legal services. 51C3s can't get that specific. 51C4s can't say that. And they can say, we are gonna tell all the voters in District 12 to tell Mike Janaris to vote yes on immigration legal services. And if he doesn't, there's gonna be electoral consequences, right? This is the thing that we always want to say. And 501c4s can actually give advocacy and organizations an ability to do that. That's what the 501c4 can do. Lastly, 501c3s can take donations and give you a tax break in return. 501c4s can't. I think there's this idea that 501c4s are not nonprofits. They are nonprofits, but if you donate to a 501c4, you're not going to get a tax break in return. So those are some of the key differences. Here's what I would say. If you are an organization that is working with elected officials, 501c4s can make your work that much stronger. And I'll tell you why. Elected officials 
care about policies, but what they care about their jobs that much more. So when you're just talking policies, it's doing things with one hand tied behind your back. But if you're involved in actually helping them keep or win their jobs, or if you're threatening their jobs, then all of a sudden you've just untied your other hand and you're working with two hands. And not to be ableist about it, but it just opens up that much more of an ability to actually influence and work with them in a real kind of way. And if you succeed, then they look at you that much more differently. And we've seen that with NYC Action in our engagement with Hillary Clinton back in 2016, with different members of Congress, and obviously with more state and local elected officials as well. So Steve, thank you for elucidating that because I think that a common perception is that if you are a C3, you can't do any kind of advocacy. But what I'm hearing you say is you can just on a more general level as opposed to getting deep into the constituencies. So this is the million dollar question. I always say I'm a dollars and cents kind of a girl. Is there a difference in terms of fundraising for a C3 versus a C4? And if so, what is the difference? Yeah, there are a couple of fundamental differences, but I think there's also a lot of similarities, and I think people should understand that as well. So first, let's be real. There's a lot of reticence on behalf of foundations, corporations, and government, and I think the knee-jerk reaction is, I can't give money to a 501c4, right? And some of that is true. Some foundations actually need to be set up in a kind of a specific way to give money to a C4. But honestly, a lot of that is bunk. For folks with corporate funders and corporations, the fact is that corporations give large amounts of money to 501c4s and to related things, right? This became a news issue just a couple of weeks ago when you saw corporations like Citi and other groups basically saying, we're not going to give money to PACs and to candidates who were supportive of the January 6th, the riot that happened on Capitol Hill. And what did that tell you? That tells you that a lot of corporations were giving a ton of money to those entities before, right? Giving money directly to candidates, giving money to political C4s and PACs and super PACs that support those candidates. So that's something that's real. And I think we should call them on it. So next time a corporation is like, well, we can't give money to 51C4s. It's like, are you sure about that? Because I'm pretty sure that you do, right? Other thing that I want to emphasize, 501c4s are actually limited by law. Your sole purpose cannot be just to do electoral work. In other words, you cannot just be doing the only thing that you're doing is just endorsing candidates and getting voters out, right? They're actually required to do some level of non-political work. And so there's an opportunity to get funding for c4s just as a vendor, Right? They can be a vendor to do different kinds of things, to do voter research, to provide policy expertise, things like that. So I think there's real opportunities. There obviously are some restrictions, as I mentioned before, for foundations and such. But there's it's important to push back when I think funders and folks say they can't fund things and to really lay bare that it's a political choice. And I think you see this with individuals as well. A lot of times we'll hear from funders and donors and they'll say, oh, 501c4s, that's too political and I can't support things that are too political. Guess what? I guarantee you that a majority of the people who tell you that are already giving to political candidates. I guarantee if you ask them, you say, well, did you give money to, in your personal capacity, to the Democrats or Joe Biden or whoever? I'm sure that the answer will probably be yes. So I think we create these arbitrary lines, and I think we actually have to deconstruct these artificial barriers 
folks give a ton of money to candidates and parties. And that's the thing, right? The reality is there's a huge and enormous flowing river of money going into politics. And I actually think 501c4s can be a critical way for organizations to actually tap into that river, right? In other words, we can tell donors who are giving to candidates, and we can say, you can either give to that candidate, and he or she might lose, they might win, they might lose, or you can give to us, who are going to empower immigrant voters and mobilize those immigrant voters on behalf of those candidates. And But what we're doing is we're building a much longer-term foundation for the future. Why don't you give to us instead? And I think our ability to make that argument successfully, our meeting 501 C3s and C4s to make that argument successfully, is going to have a huge impact on our ability to be politically powerful. The last thing that I would say is that 501 C4s, the right-wing folks have actually figured it out, and they use 501 C4s in a much more malevolent way, right? I mean, here's something that I would point out, not encouraging this, I would point out, but right-wing folks have figured this out. Donations to candidates are limited. You want to give money to a city council member, you're limited. You want to give money to a federal member of Congress or for president, you're limited. There's campaign contribution limits. Donations to 501c4s are unlimited. Corporate donations to 501c4s, unlimited. So right-wing folks often give huge donations to 501c4s, wink, wink, who will then endorse a candidate and then run a voter drive on behalf of them. Right-wing folks use 501c4s as ways to kind of get around campaign contribution limits. I'm not encouraging that. I'm just pointing out that right-wing folks have figured out a way to really use that, right? They use the gray areas and then they just bust into them. And then the other thing is donations to 501c4s are actually much harder to scrutinize. In places like New York, there's actually more disclosure now. But right-wing folks use 501c4s in ways to give secret donations. So I just flagged that other folks on the political spectrum have figured out ways to use 501c4s in very different kinds of ways. And I think the progressive movement struggles with that, and they're not willing to go there. But I just point that fact out. Well... Let's see if Tish James can help us out on that one. Can you talk a little bit about the revenue mix and the difference between a C3 and a C4? So my understanding, and you've debunked a little bit of this, is that a C3 may have a bigger chunk of, say, foundation money and maybe some government money, et cetera, et cetera. I'm wondering if that looks different for a C4. I certainly think that looks different for a C4. There's different models to it, and I think... Generally, what you're going to see is you're going to see a greater preponderance. The successful 51C4s have figured this out, especially on the progressive side. You're going to see a greater preponderance of individual small dollar donors to 501C4s. And they use that as the bulk. And a lot of times, some institutions, the main entity is a 501C4, and the 51C3 is just alongside it doing, they'll set up an education fund to be a 51C3, the ACLU. When you go to the ACLU website, that's the 51C4's website. And so if you want to get to the C3s, if you want to make a C3 donation, you'll have to click through to get there. But the main donation page of the ACLU is the 501C4. Some of the biggest entities that you might not think are 51C4s, the ACLU, but the NRA. Not that a lot of people on this podcast are going to go to the NRA website, but if you do, that's a 51C4. Their 51C4 is huge. 
and they run a little 501c3 to do some educational activities alongside it, right? So a lot of the people giving are individuals. They may not know they're giving to a 501c4, but they are, right? And so I think for a number of reasons, the small dollar donors, the folks who are visiting websites often are, are caring less. If they're giving 50 bucks, they may not care that they're going to get 15 bucks back in a tax break. But if you're a large dollar donor, you might care more about that. So I think for 501c4s, for some of them, the small dollar individual donor pool is going to be significantly greater. And then, as I said before, a lot of foundations, they're not set up to enable 501c4 giving, but you're seeing more funders set up in these kinds of different corporate formations that allow them to give money to C4s, to C3s, directly to candidates if they wanted. So I think you're starting to see foundations relax the restrictions a little bit and figure out how to give to that. So I think definitely the funder mix is going to be a little different. Much more individuals, less foundations. It's so interesting, Steve, because actually your strategy for a C4 mirrors a lot of the advice that I give to my clients about how to raise for a C3. Because I do think, and I've said this publicly, which I think in the next 12 to 18 months, I'm guessing that foundation giving is going to be pretty flat. A lot of folks have doubled down on existing portfolio grantees. I mean, I think corporate is kind of unknown, probably a goose egg, given the way that the economy is going. So to me, the growth is really in individuals and specifically high net worth donors. I'm wondering, does that mirror your strategy with raising for C4? Yeah, I think so. And I think we have a moment now in 2021 to make a really strong argument for 2024. I mean, as an organization that the NYC runs voter drives every single year, we get involved in big elections and small elections as well. Folks who are involved in the voter empowerment space and the civic engagement space, everyone will tell you there's big money when it's an electoral year. And there's really big money when it's a presidential electoral year, right? And then that money vanishes. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of people totally willing to throw down, put a lot of money in 2020. We're going back to them in 2021. And they're like, well, I don't really know if I want to do that, right? It's I feel like we won the battle. And it's like, no, no, no. So I think there's an opportunity, particularly around 501c4s to actually build and to say, look, let's figure out a strategy to get individual donors, get them into building the infrastructure of a C4 and get them involved in 2021, in 2022. In 2021, there are a couple of local elections that people are going to care about for city, for, I mean, for the mayor, for city council, and other local areas as well. 2022 is midterm elections, right? And so I think there's an opportunity now where C3s can say, we should stand up a C4, take advantage of the interest that people have in the local elections to actually build a stronger base around the C4 so that when 2024 rolls around, we're in a much stronger space. And that can be a real locus of some of our efforts. Okay, I'm just going to ask a question, and this is my own ignorance, but the way that I always counsel people to think about fundraising, especially individuals, is really deep engagement long-term. What I'm hearing from you with C4s is because it's so issue-based and sort of time-bound, it may not be the same kind of long-term engagement strategy. Is that correct or no? I think it, especially for political C4s that will do endorsements, and I should know not all C4s will do endorsements, not all of them will do get out the vote drives or run independent expenditures. But for ones that do, I actually do think there's an opportunity. And as I said before, if we can find ways to engage and to say, look, we know that you wanted to support 
let's say, Perry Gershon running for Congress in Long Island, right? And to say, okay, you want to give your money to him, and here's what's going to happen. He's either going to win or he's going to lose. Why don't you instead give money to us to actually build a base of immigrant voters and members of our C4 that we can then run endorsements to? And we might endorse Perry Gershon and figure out how to support him. But we can also endorse someone at the Nassau County executive race in, in 2021 and then the midterms in 2022 and build up our base to be a real powerful political force so that we can actually influence the election in 2024. I think that's the opportunity that I think if we can do that successfully and we're able to tap in to this giant river of money going into candidates, I think we can actually find some success. So I do actually think there's a long-term vision there that I think if we sell it right and we're able to demonstrate impact, then I think it can go a long way. What's interesting about what you say is I think there's a perception that it's hard to fundraise for grassroots and advocacy efforts. And I think about the ways in which I fundraise for C3s, and it is so ultimately an emotional decision. And I think what's interesting about what you say is I think we've seen so much money coming out in 2020 because people were really angry about stuff. I mean, personally speaking, I never donated to political campaigns out of my state, and all of a sudden I was writing checks to then go to Georgia. So I guess I'm mm -hmm. just wondering, what are the opportunities and or obstacles do you see when fundraising for grassroots and advocacy organizations? Yeah, so I think that's a perfect example. I mean, so much has stuff has become politicized now. Like even the provision of services, that stuff is politicized now. Everything has become a lot more polarized as well. So I think there's opportunities there, right? Especially if you're a progressive advocacy organization. Can you work and figure out how to leverage your relationships with elected officials in particular and say this is part of the larger thing that we're trying to work for. We're not only trying to make our policies change, we're not only trying to make these things happen, but we need elected officials to actually be champions of that. And in order to support us to get the right elected officials to be champions, you know, you want to create this kind of dynamic where there's a virtuous circle where you're able to demonstrate these policy changes that we want to see happen are very much directly connected to getting the right kind of elected officials there. And in this kind of environment, I think there's a much stronger way that you can actually do that. And so that is a huge opportunity that I see. For example, the reality is in 2019, we would not have been able to win driver's licenses for all New Yorkers if it had not been for a wave of progressive legislators going to the state legislature, right, being elected in 2018 in that big wave. They came in and they said, okay, we're coming in. We need to really make things happen. We need to put some wins on the board. And driver's licenses, I mean, it was a perfect match of progressive legislators who were willing to push the envelope and then a statewide grassroots movement that was ready to work with them. So I think that's a critical piece. How do you work within the dynamic of grassroots advocacy, making a statement that these elected officials now have to deliver, being able to deliver for them, but also saying, this is why we're going to support you for re-election the next time around, I think there's a virtuous circle that if we can get into it in the right way, there's big, big opportunities for funding, not just really for progressive advocacy causes at this moment, especially in a place like New York. All right, I've got two more questions and I want to throw it open to the folks. But to play devil's advocate for a second, I think 
perhaps one of the challenges of raising for a C4 is it's a little wonky, right? And it's more of a long-term thing. So for example, when I was raising money, it was a very clear case, like send kids to college, right? There's not a lot of thought that you have to put into it. Whereas I think when you're raising money for a C4, it seems there's a lot of explanation that has to happen. If we do this, then this person will support these policies and then these policies will change, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel that is an obstacle that you've had to overcome when raising for a C4? Definitely. There's legalities around lobbying and lobbying rules and political donations and independent expenditures and related expenditures. And there's a lot of stuff to process. And I think we certainly have not cracked this nut totally fully either. But I think there's something powerful, though, to be said about using your C4 to get commitments from elected officials who, to actually make things happen. And then when they actually get in office and you're helping to make get them in office, then seeing them deliver on those promises. One of the things we focused on in 2016 was we went to Hillary Clinton and the New York primary, the presidential primary was a contested election. Hillary Clinton winning the New York presidential primary in 2016 was not a done deal by far. And so we saw an opportunity there to basically say, okay, Hillary, we want to actually use our C4, and we actually want you to make these promises. We want you to make a promise to establish an Office of Immigrant Affairs, the first ever federal Office of Immigrant Affairs. We want you to promise to spend this much money on community-led immigration legal services. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. And I think we were able to use that moment, and she actually agreed. She said, I'm going to make those promises. And so we used our 501c4 at the time. It was called the New York State Immigrant Action Fund. And so we said, okay, we're now going to endorse you. We're going to go through a process where we're actually going to endorse you ahead of the presidential primary. And at the time, the NYC, I mean, it was a big institution. Probably at the time, I think we were about a $7 million organization with offices across the state. Our C4 was a tiny little institution that barely had a functioning website. In fact, we ran into some trouble because they looked at our website and they're like, your website's not functioning. And we're like, yeah, it's been hacked, but we'll get it up online. I mean, that's how small beans our 501c4 was at the time. But that was a lesson that I learned. Your 501c4 has that kind of political impact. It can get a presidential candidate to make real commitments and promises. And I mean, if she had become president, I think it would have opened up a whole new door and we would have been able to demonstrate she did all this stuff. Of course, maybe she does that in an alternate universe. She didn't win in the universe that we exist now. So, but I say that because I think if that had been successful, that would have been a really eye-opening example of how you can actually use the power of it, the latent power of 501c4 in ways that would have catapulted our visibility and I think our fundraising as well. Gosh, if only we could go back to 2016. That's a whole other story. <laughs> All right, last question, and I don't want this to bring us too far, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about this. What is your take on all of the recent anti-Asian sentiment and violence that has occurred to members of the Asian community of late? Yeah, well, obviously, it's devastating to hear of these stories of Asian Americans, particularly the elderly being targeted. And I mean, people have lost their lives as a result. It's really devastating. In some ways, though, it's not surprising, right? We have had a lot of both short-term and a lot of vitriol riled up by people like the president 
scapegoating. Let's just say this, ex-president. <laughs> tells you about the trauma that we face that we still have to, we have to still think of it as the president. But I mean, Donald Trump for years, and not just Donald Trump, but a lot of people who think of themselves as respected Republicans coming out there and saying these terrible things. There is a direct cause and effect by elected leaders giving cover to sentiments, hateful sentiments. And you see this I mean, you saw this in a number of ways, targeting a lot of different folks. But there's a short-term impact there as well. I really think, though, this is also the result of longer-term phenomenon where Asian Americans have always been seen as the perpetual foreigner and not part of us, not part of our body politic, right? So I think what you're seeing is a toxic mix of short-term really terrible phenomena happen with the long-term thing that we have not fully solved and we've not, as a society, as a country, have not fully dealt with. And so this is the incredibly toxic mix of the short-term piece and the long-term piece. And if we're going to solve this, we're not going to solve it just by getting rid of Donald Trump and getting people to stop talking about Chinese people being the origin of the virus. We've got to deal with the underlying piece. It's not a surprise. I would go around and tell folks, I'd say, if we think in the early years of the Trump administration, I think there was some sentiment almost of, hey, other people are the targets right now. There was a lot of focus on Mexicans as rapists and criminals. I'd go around to Asian American spaces and I'd say, we're this close to that pendulum swinging back around and the target being Chinese or Korean or whoever, Vietnamese or South Asian, as it was in the post 9-11 era. We're one swing of the pendulum come back around for us to be the target. I never envisioned that it would be a virus that would cause that. I thought it would be a military war. But so I would say I'm not surprised, right? The unleashing of these forces of hate, they're going to find different targets. They are not going away. Yeah, it's an unfortunate phenomenon, but I do think being in solidarity and having a unified voice goes a long way. It just reminds me, I'm a third generation American, but consistently the question of like, well, where are you from? But where are you really mm. from? <laughs> After three generations of being an American, I'm American. All right, let's jump to some questions. Jong-Hoon, you have a question. Do you want to ask? Hi. So what's the biggest difference between C4 and PAC and Super PAC? And what area that C4 has advantage over forming a PAC or a Super PAC? That's my question. Yeah. It's a great question. And I think this is part of the confusion, part of the difficulties, because you have to wade into all this kind of stuff, all this terminology that's super confusing. I'll be the first one to say, I'm not the expert on this, right? We have folks who are the experts on that. We hire them, we pay them a lot of money. But I think the key difference that I would note is that between a C4 and a super PAC, and a super PAC is essentially an independent expenditure. And basically, a C4 as an organization can endorse candidates, right? And if it actually wants to do things on behalf of the candidate and do so independent fashion, then you set up a super PAC, which is an independent expenditure. For example, a C4 can endorse, let's say we want to endorse Tish James running for governor <laughs> in 2022. Then we could endorse her as a C4. But then we said, well, we want to help you get elected. Then you have two choices. You can either do stuff connected with and related to Tish James's election campaign. And then she has to report that, hey, I'm getting support from this organization. And we report that we're working together with her. Or we can do what's called an independent expenditure, aka a super PAC. 
And that independent expenditure can then, is supposed to be totally independent of Tish James. We can't say, hey, Tish, we're going to have a press conference. You should show up. Or, hey, Tish, tell us where you actually have gone and done a voter drive. We have to be independent, right? And so if we wanted to do that in an independent fashion, we would create a super PAC and independent expenditure that is a project of the C4, but actually is almost a separate corporate identity. You have to have your own separate board and a name and you have to incorporate and such. But then that independent expenditure allows us to then dive in deep and really engage around that particular election in a way that's independent of the candidate. And it's just a project of the C4, but it gives you more flexibility to actually do that. So that is one very significant difference between a 51C4 and a super PAC in particular. Thanks. That was very helpful because I didn't know the difference. Something that you said earlier was about a 51C3 that might be thinking about starting a C4 arm or vice versa, a C4 starting a C3 arm. I'm curious if you could speak about what are some considerations that would lead to a decision, say, for a traditional C3 deciding to start a C4 arm? Yeah. So again, I know the the basic outlines. I certainly don't know the individual brass tacks. And I'd encourage folks to look at Alliance for Justice is one organization that has a lot of great national resources. And here in New York, the Lawyers Alliance of New York, I mean, they're able to provide really strong legal guidance for some organizations around that. First of all, one thing I would say is a lot of advocacy organizations think, oh, we need to set up a 501c4 because there's lobbying restrictions. As a 501c3, there's only a certain amount of lobbying that you can do. And you can get all legal and grassroots and direct lobbying. But so I think what you saw happen, I think probably in the past decade, is a lot of organizations being like, oh my God, I got to create a, a separate 501c4 so I can overcome the lobbying restriction, right? A nonprofit can only do 20% of their work can be lobbying. So you saw a lot of organizations being like, we got to create that C4 so we don't violate that lobbying restriction. You don't need to. I stress this, right? It's not necessary because if what you're doing and you can categorize your expenses in the right way, even advocacy organizations will not bump up against that 20% limit, right? So I just want to flag that. But some organizations, I think, something to consider. There's that lobbying restriction. Another thing that I think is important to consider from the get-go is how much does that C4 want to engage in the actual political work, meaning the electoral work? As I said before, I'd highly encourage it. It gives you an incredibly powerful tool to be able to have impact and to influence things. I remember when we used to do voter work at the Minquan Center, we would go out, we would meet with Korean and Asian American voters and say, okay, here are the candidates, right? We'd even say, these are the two people running, right? You gotta make sure you go out and vote. And the question that we always got asked was, who should we vote for? And as a C3, you're like, it's really important that you vote. It's important that you vote on these kinds of issues. Here's where the candidates stand on the issues, but I can't tell you who to vote for. It's an artificial, it's a really artificial limit. And so I think giving people and giving organizations the ability to actually say, here's who you should vote for, I think is a really, really powerful political tool. So I think that's a consideration. How much does the organization do that direct voter outreach and want to translate that into another level of political power? But I would say the majority of organizations that do a lot of advocacy as part of their mission, you should consider 
doing a C4 because it makes your advocacy around issues that much more powerful. Great. We have a really good question coming in from Nakia. Nakia, do you want to ask? Sure. So I'm overseeing development for both our C3 and C4. I'm in a position where it looks like we have to build up our C4 donor base. And so I'm curious about the distinctions of prospecting for C4s versus C3s. Yeah. So I think a couple things that I would note. One is for individual donors, the tax break can make a difference. And so one of the things that we did at the NYC, we thought about where are our donors going? And we actually said, maybe we should create an individual donor base. Maybe we should actually create individual members. Maybe say, let's say you want to create a member base where you're going to ask people to donate 50 bucks a year, right? One of the things that we recognized on our side was somebody who might give $20,000, probably as an individual, probably wants that tax break. Somebody who gives $50 a year probably doesn't care as much about the tax break. So one thing to consider is, you might want to do a distinction by which 501c3 donors can, larger donors, you make it more available for them to actually give to the C3 to make themselves available for the tax break. And individual members, you can actually direct towards your C4. I think a side benefit of that is that a 501c4 ability to build an individual member base, especially if you're doing endorsements, is not just financial, it's political. If you are doing politics and you're going to do endorsements and you go and tell an elected official, hey, not only are we going to make an endorsement, but we have a thousand individual dues-paying members of our 501c4 that we are then directing endorsements to, that we're broadcasting endorsements to, that's a source of political power and not just financial power. So that's, I think, something to keep in mind. And that's something that we've been thinking in our strategy as well. That being said, I would not want to just simply direct large donors to give to the C3 and not to the C4. In fact, what I would do is I would say you should also be giving large donations to the C4 as well. And I know some funders with large individual donors have done that. Some donors who have their family foundations and they're giving individually. I know, for example, one funder says, take all the money that you give in your family foundation, give it to a C3. All your individual donations should go to a C4 or to a political candidate, right? So I think long-term, it's going to be important to socialize your big donors to say, you need to be giving big donations to the C4 as well. So that's one difference that I would distinguish, especially if you're talking about individual donors. All right, we got a question coming in from Sam. Sam, do you want to ask? Sam Marks, I'm the CEO of a foundation called FJC. It's a foundation of donor-advised funds, and we've been toying with the idea of, does it make sense to think about creating a kind of DAF sponsor for C4s? In our foundation, the donor-advised funds allow us to aggregate tax-deductible donations from a bunch of different donors who may be too small to have their own foundations, but have the benefit of the scale of being part of our platform. Alternately, we do fiscal sponsorships for nonprofits that don't have their own 501c3, but can use us as their 501c3 where they can raise money. And we manage a lot of the operations about how the money moves. Both of these, what ties them together is money coming in, money coming out, lots of logistics, lots of scale that we could bring to managing those logistics. I'm wondering if there's an applicability to the C4 world, whether there's a value add in that kind of entity, 
being in the space or would it be considered competing with the C4s? Would it add value either in terms of aggregating lots of donors and spreading it out to lots of C4s or being a kind of back office operations for C4s that don't have that set up for themselves? Yeah, and good to hear from you, Sam. And I think that's a really important question. One of the things that I think, just organizationally speaking, one of the really powerful tools that you can use as a C3 and a C4 is you create a administrative working agreement between the C3 and the C4. And this is something that we've done. You know, we flip-flopped a lot. What's the organizational model look like? And some C3s that want to create C4s will create a standalone C4, they'll staff it separately, and they'll just kind of run it as like a separate but related organization. Some organizations, it's very organically connected, right? So the C3 will have an administrative agreement with the C4 by which the C4 borrows the C3 staff's time, they borrow their use of facilities, and they basically pay on a per-hour basis. So, for example, that's what we do with the NYC Action and NYC. You have NYC staff, C3 staff, you have an administrative agreement that allows NYC3 staff to spend time working on the C4 and doing C4 stuff, and you have to note that on your timesheet and you mark that. And then every period of time, then the C3 sends a bill over to the C4 and says, here's how much time our folks spent to work on C4 stuff. You need to reimburse us for that. So, and it allows you to operate a C4 without having to staff up separately and do all sorts of different things, right? Organizationally, I think that a mix of those two things is important. Some of the challenges, if you try to staff up your C4 separately, it's like any other startup. You have one, two, a handful of people trying to run an organization doing administrative development, communications, political stuff. And then on the other side, for a C3, you have this established expertise to do all that stuff, to do communications, to do fundraising, And you're kind of created this separate wall by which you can't access that. Now, at the same time, if you have the administrative agreement, I think one of the challenges is the C3 stuff, since it tends to be larger, can end up sucking up all the time. And C4 stuff can end up being almost an afterthought. So I actually think some kind of hybrid model by which you have this administrative agreement and the C4 can tap into the C3 staff expertise, but also you have people whose main job it is is to run C4 stuff and are going to be holding people accountable and saying, hey, you guys need to do this. We guys, we need to move these projects. I actually think that's a model that I think works well. So Sam, your question, I actually think could really be helpful, particularly as C4s, as folks are trying to get C4s up off the ground, to the extent that you are a fiscal sponsor and doing C3 stuff, you could potentially work with groups that want to do a C4, execute an administrative agreement so they don't have to go through all the, jump through all the hoops, doing separate payroll and time and all that stuff. I think that could actually be really beneficial. So, and it's a related question to the one Mary-Kate is talking about. I think this is the case don't quote me on it, but I think there's ways in which you can expand your administrative agreement so that it can cover a lot of payroll and all sorts of other administrative tasks that the C3 is doing. There's some things that you can't, right? There's some things that the administrative agreement is not going to cover, but this way you don't have to have a separate agreement with a phone company to run the phones or a separate agreement to use the internet or have to have a separate printer or any of that stuff. You include that in the administrative agreement so you don't have to jump through a lot of those hoops. 
to follow up on that question, Steve, and there's one other question coming in, but what about the money and I think the prospects? Because I think fundraising gets very, I mean, people get territorial about their prospects and their leads. So how do you thread that needle? So I'll also bring up one other related challenge, I think, to consider. So first, I think it's critical that if a C3 is doing C4 stuff, that you bring in people and you figure out how to get some kind of buy-in from the get-go. This is an integral part of what we do, right? Otherwise, if the C4 is just doing political work, and let's say you have an organization that's doing political work plus, but doing other things, like doing services and doing other things, if you're not intentional about having leadership really message, this is why the C4 is important. And this is why some of your time might get spent doing C4 stuff. It's gonna get seen as this random, political thing that's vaguely illegal and maybe we shouldn't be doing it. We're going to violate tax laws and IRS. You got to be able to, and I think that was one of the lessons we learned. We didn't message properly enough. And so I think at a certain point it became seen as almost something shady. It's not shady. It's actually really critical. It's able to put our campaigns over the top, but if you don't intentionally message it to all the C3 staff, it's a real challenge. And I think, so that's one thing I would really encourage is get the buy-in from key staff from the beginning. And that goes for folks that are gonna have to do that, your development people. Get them involved in the beginning and say, look, I'm gonna ask you to do C4 fundraising, just like you did C3 fundraising, right? This is all part of the same picture. And in some ways, you can actually double dip. I think there's real opportunities to have conversations with the C3 donors and say, by the way, want you to consider giving an additional gift. We're about to launch a major voter campaign. We're endorsing this person for a mayor or whatever, member of Congress. Can you give an extra $5,000, right? Whatever, right? For the C4. And I think if you do it in the right way, there's an opportunity. And I think you can actually build a deeper relationship with that individual funder who's giving money to both the C3 and the C4. So that's one thing I would say. One last thing that I would flag, the piece, if you're doing actual get out the vote work, there's some trickiness there. There's legal trickiness, but beyond that, there's optics trickiness, right? If your C4 is endorsing candidates and asking your staff to actually go and do work to help get that candidate elected, we've seen some challenges where your staff might be like, I don't want to do that. I don't like that candidate. I don't want to work for Hillary Clinton, but I'm a Bernie person, right? This is a real live example. So I think one of the things that I would encourage is if you're going to go that route and if folks are actually going to not only endorse candidates, but do work to get them elected, that you think about utilizing an IE and you actually think about not going with the administrative agreement, but paying them separately and saying, okay, and maybe it's a coalition of the willing. Maybe it's just this. If you want to work on getting Hillary Clinton elected, then you're going to get paid separately by the independent expenditure that we set up to support Hillary Clinton getting elected. And so maybe setting up lines so that you're not asking folks to go out and canvas for a candidate that they don't actually support. It's just a flag, I think, for groups that actually do that kind of work. All right. I think we might have time for one quick last question. Liz, do you want to ask? Absolutely. Hi, Steve. How are you? Nice to see you again. So I wanted to ask a couple of questions. So building on your comment about not wanting to duplicate efforts and use an admin agreement for C3 staff to have their time on the C4, has it then been your approach that kind of campaign strategist or, or senior person at the C4 has been a consultant and therefore kind of had that separation and not necessarily having to build up processes around that one or two staff people? And then a separate question about 
about relationship, if any, of the C3 board and the new C4 organization and what's appropriate. Great question. Two really great questions. First of all, yes, I do think going the consultant route is helpful, right? You can use the administrative agreement, but like I said, to the extent if you want somebody who's focusing more on C4 work, you you can make them a consultant. I'm a consultant on the C4 side, right? And so we didn't pay attention to that when we first started NYC Action. At some point, the state government sent us a bill and you weren't paying unemployment insurance. And we're like, what? (laughs) We're like, oh crap, we got to do that. Paying someone as a consultant, you deal with less less of those issues, right? Especially if you're only going to have a handful of staff, why jump through those hoops, right? So I think that makes sense. And so I think that's something that I would know. The board question is critical. And I think that my recommendation is, you have some level of crossover between the C3 and the C4 board. You have some C3 board members who also are on the C4 board. If they're too distinct, then you can create real problems. The C4 board might be out there endorsing candidates and the C3 board might be like, why are we endorsing them? Having some level of connectivity is important, right? And I think that being said, and I also think legally, you want that separation. You don't want the C3 board to have influence over the C4 board. It helps to say, look, these are two distinct entities, right? They're two distinct entities. It gives you a measure of political cover as well. And so I think that that's important. So many C3 boards at some point are going to be like, wait, 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 why is the C4 endorsing that person? And I think saying like, look, we have a principle that these are related but separate entities helps to push back because I guarantee you a C3 board member is going to get upset about somebody that the C4 board might actually endorse, right? So I think that's important. But having them totally unrelated, I think, is not helpful as well, right? Some level of continuity is important. It depends on the board chair. Sometimes the board chair is the same person. It gives that board chair that much more political influence, but also could put you in a world of hurt as well. And so it could end up jeopardizing things. So I just want to flag that. I can ask, is it okay for C3 staff to be on the C4 board? That's a good question. We have not gone that route. I don't see legally why that would be a problem. I do think it could get a little tricky, particularly because on the C4 board, you may have governance things that could affect how they're working on the C3 side. For example, the rule is, you can give money to a C4 that will get, then give money to the C3. It can just be a pass-through and you can take a little bit off the top, right, for administrative. You can't really do that as a C3 to a C4. You can't run a C4 contract through the C3. So what that could mean, though, is that there might be a contract that uses the C4 as a pass-through to the C3 and might pay for some of that staff member's time who's a C4 board member. So all of a sudden, they're in a governance position over something that could affect their day-to-day job. I can imagine that to be a little bit tricky. Steve, I want to say this has been super informative. I learned so much. Thank you. If folks want to get in touch with you, where can we find you on the interwebs? Yes, so you can email me on C3 or C4-related stuff, C3 stuff about schoy at nyic.org. If you want to email me about C4-related stuff, it's nycaction.org. Feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to talk to all of you. Thank you so much, Steve. And I'll make sure to also put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for folks who want to get in touch. Thanks so much for sharing all of your expertise. I have a lot to think about. Thanks to all of you for joining, and we will see you next time. Take care.